Mother Teresa, who is a nun, a woman of great courage, who works with the sick and the dying and the poor around the world, once said that in our lives we are not so much asked to do great things, but that we are asked to do small things with great love. To this simple and profound statement reminds us very much of the heart of this journey, this path we are all engaged in. If there is one thing, one single thing that we are asked to learn here, it is of the power of compassion, the power of love. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda, saying, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of compassion? And the Buddha said, no, it wouldn't be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of compassion. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion. And sometimes it is easy to forget what an integral, what an essential role this quality of heart plays in the whole process of transformation, in the whole awakening of ourselves and the healing of our world. In our own experience in meditation, it is very easy to become somewhat lost and preoccupied with the intricacies of our practice. Sometimes we become very involved in the complexities of our own agendas that we bring to meditation. Sometimes we find ourselves worrying or concerned about the depth of our mindfulness or how many times our minds have wandered in a sitting or um, how many times we have had daydreams or becoming entangled in ideas of progress and improvement or resolving issues. And sometimes that very involvement leads us to forget at times that the heart of this practice is to nurture within ourselves a, a dedication and a commitment to the end of all suffering and to nurture within ourselves a dedication and a commitment to the awakening, to the understanding, to the insight that brings suffering to an end. And I think it is very true to say that the bridge between suffering and awakening is compassion. Now, at times we are tempted to think of compassion in terms of great deeds or grand sacrifices. We think perhaps to be compassionate, maybe we may have to make some very dramatic gestures or renunciations in our lives. And of course, when we think in these rather grandiose terms, we also think that perhaps we really have to leave compassion for the saints and the Buddhas in the world. 
or begin to think of compassion as a state or a destination that we will arrive at probably much later in our journey. After we have done the other work we need to do. We think perhaps after we have resolved our issues, made ourselves a better person, or perhaps after we have purified ourselves or made ourselves more perfect, then perhaps we will have the whatever is needed to think about compassion. I think we can say actually very fully and very totally about compassion that we don't have to be worthy and we don't have to be perfect to love and to be compassionate in this world. We actually only have to be present and awake. We don't have to make grand gestures to be or to exhibit or to prove compassion. It is in the most simple of words, the most simple of gestures, the most essential of our relationships that we express the love and the compassion that actually makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of others. We do not need a lot of wise credentials or to have many experiences in meditation to know compassion. What we do need to know is how to listen well, how to listen well to this moment. It is certainly not a multitude of prescriptions or formulas, solutions that will enable us to live in a compassionate way. Much more compassion is found within the simplicity of being able to attend to each moment wholeheartedly in our lives without resistance. Compassion is not a state. It is not a mental state that we will gain or achieve or be rewarded with. It is not even simply a feeling that we might direct towards specific instances of suffering or pain. Compassion is a relationship. It is a way of being present in our world and in our lives and in ourselves. One of the greatest manifestations of the Buddha mind, the Buddha spirit, is embodied in the deity of Kuan Yin. And Kuan Yin translated means one who hearkens or one who listens to the sounds of the universe. It seems to me that this is actually what the path of compassion is all about. That capacity to listen, to hearken well to the sounds of our universe. This listening doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't have an objective even of fixing suffering. It has no agenda of trying to find the right words or the right actions, nor to place blame. The concern of compassion is simply to listen, 
because our capacity to listen well, to listen wholeheartedly, this is actually the mother of wisdom. In listening is found revelation. Listening well, the universe is revealed to us. Listening well, we are revealed to ourselves. Listening to each moment well reveals perhaps the illusion of separation. All beings, all life, are interconnected on both relative and on ultimate levels. We are interconnected in our dependency upon each other. We cannot live without each other. We cannot live without all of those beings in the world who in so many different ways contribute to the most simple of our needs, the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the shelter that we have. We cannot live without the planet that we live within to support us. We are interconnected in our dependency upon each other. We are interconnected with all life in our capacity to feel, to experience joy and to experience pain, to experience happiness and to experience fear. In no matter what form or what guise those feelings arise within us, essentially fear is fear, anger is anger, happiness is happiness. There is no being in this world who is exempt from pain. There is no being who is exempt from sickness, from, so from loss, from separation, from grief, from terror. The threads of feeling run through the experiences and the lives of all living beings. Therefore, no one is exempt from the need for compassion, because it is compassion that heals us and restores us. It is compassion that offers to us a sanctuary from pain. It is compassion that offers us the courage to be alive in a conscious way. We are all interconnected too in the realm of possibility. In our lives, there is the possibility of delusion, of living with our eyes and our hearts veiled and clouded. There is the possibility of living with wakefulness. This lies, these possibilities lie within all of our hearts. To live with our eyes and our hearts veiled, to live within delusion, is the breeding ground of division, the breeding ground of the belief in separation, in the belief in self apart from all other selves. And this belief is actually the forerunner of suffering. It is the parent of greed, of anger, of hatred, of prejudice, and of violence. We can only harm that which we see as being other, than ourselves. To see ourselves as being other from other selves 
is to live in a world of opponents and allies, surrounded by potential threat, surrounded by potential promise. It is a world of struggle. The most essential suffering, the most essential pain that it is possible for a living being to experience is the delusion of believing to be exiled or feeling to be exiled from that which is most true within ourselves. All beings are equally connected in the possibility of realization, the possibility of awakening to that which is unconditioned, to that which is true, which lies in and through all forms and appearance. I'd like to read you something. Ordinary beings are the Buddha, just as they are. The Buddha is one with them. Both have the same nature. The phenomenal universe and nirvana, activity and stillness, all have the same nature. So do all possible worlds and the state that transcends all worlds. When I say that they all have the same nature, I mean that their names and forms, their existence and non-existence are empty. The vast world systems, uncountable as the sands of the Ganges, are all contained in the one boundless, empty, radiant mind. If the true nature of all things is the same, how can distinctions be real? Listening is actually all that meditation is about. We are learning this most simple of skills, this most profound of arts, how to listen well. If we bear that in mind, bear that in our hearts, we know that it is actually always the right time to put aside our ideas of progress and regression to put aside our ideas of attainment and non-attainment, of good and bad, of high and low, for these distinctions actually have very little to do with meditation. They have very little to do with compassion. They have much to do with self-image. They have much to do with what we want from meditation. And actually, it's very difficult to listen well, to listen wholeheartedly, when we are so entangled within all these distinctions, because these distinctions mean that we are very tied to the notions of performance and appearance, of perfection and imperfection, more entangled with them than perhaps we are concerned with listening. All that we are asked to do in every moment is to listen well to the sounds of the universe. If we were to describe meditation, the practice of meditation, it is this acute, alert, sensitive listening. It is a way of being present, and we can say it is a way of compassion. It is knowing how to listen without demands and without conditions. 
That's why it's difficult. We can see why compassion is so challenging to us. It's very difficult to live without demands and without conditions. It is said that this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. We are perhaps at times more inclined to live within a world of preferences. Yes, we are happy to listen to the sound of a bird, but not to our neighbor. We are happy to listen to the unfoldment of insight, but not to the mind that chatters. We are willing to attend to spaciousness, to calmness and to loving kindness, but perhaps not to the anger or the jealousy or the greed that arises within us. There is a story of a young monk who dedicated his practice to developing compassion and loving-kindness. And every day he had a small altar, and he would sit before the altar with a small Buddha upon it and burn incense to the Buddha as an offering and chant his mantras of loving-kindness and compassion, doing all that he could. Beside him there was another young monk who really annoyed him. Same old story, right? So, because this other young monk annoyed him so much, he didn't want to share the wonderful smells of his incense and his offerings with this other monk. So he built a little funnel around his incense. (laughs) Well, the smoke from his incense went straight into the face of the Buddha and turned it black. Every condition that arises within us about offering, living in the spirit of compassion and loving-kindness is actually a little bit of renunciation of what is possible in our hearts. You know, sometimes we speak a lot about breakthroughs in meditation and many people hope for the breakthroughs to come. There are perhaps many breakthroughs in meditation, but I feel the most important breakthrough in meditation is the breakthrough, breaking through our resistance to being with what is. Because breaking through that resistance to being just what is here right now, this is actually the beginning of meditation and the beginning of compassion. The spiritual life, learning how to do small things with great love. Compassion is about this loving, wholehearted presence, the willingness to welcome with an open heart, without conditions, everything that arises in our world in each moment. To learn to refrain from our judgments, to learn to refrain from evaluating what is worthy and what is not, to learn from refraining from evaluating what is deserving of our attention and compassion and what is unworthy. That restraint is actually to see the place of wisdom in compassion. Because to be compassionate, we are asked to be empty. We are asked to be empty. 
Every time we refrain just a little bit from judgment and from acting in accord with our judgments, every time we refrain from acting with either aversion or with clinging, in that moment there is a very profound renunciation that takes place. The renunciation that takes place is a renunciation actually of the world of appearances the world of delusion, and the world of ignorance. In that renunciation of our judgments, our evaluations, and our distinctions, we actually renounce in that moment, perhaps just a little, the belief in self and other. And in that renunciation, perhaps we learn how to begin to honor the truth, the suchness, the interconnectedness of all life that lies beneath the world of name and form, the world of dancing phenomena. We learn how to honor that. An example, someone offends you. They annoy you in some way. They irritate you. They have done something wrong. The mind very quickly evaluates it. We withdraw a little bit. This person is not someone we want to be near. They have harmed us in some way, we feel. The next time we meet that person, what do we see? We see our memory. We see our image. We see the weight that we carry with us from the past. In seeing that memory, we offer no possibility. There is little possibility of change. There is little possibility of openness. Instead, the division becomes very solidified. It becomes a truth. It becomes very real for us. Everyone is a prisoner of that division. It is not that we have removed this person from our lives. No, we are married to them. we are actually engaged in an ongoing relationship with that or with who we have aversion for. What does it mean? Not, you know, perhaps the judgments will arise. What does it mean to be willing to stay with those judgments, those feelings? What does it mean to be willing to stay close with that person, to be near them, to be near them in our hearts? There is no blame in in ignorance. There is no blame in judgment. Our responsibility is only to follow the path of possibilities because this is the path of compassion, the path of the heart. To receive the world, to listen to the world, to listen ourselves in a spirit of loving emptiness. This is the most profound gift of compassion we can offer to another person or we can offer to ourselves. In these moments of loving emptiness, we actually travel the path of the bodhisattva. We travel the path of all of those who have gone before us, who carry with them a commitment to the end of suffering, a commitment to the awakening of all beings to that which is most true within them. To listen wholeheartedly is a challenge. 
to live in a spirit of truth and interconnectedness is a challenge. Our other option is to live in a world of self and appearances. I wonder how, if you have noticed, how much easier it is to follow the pathways of familiarity, of anger, of distance, of alienation. Doesn't it strike you as strange that at times it is so much easier, it seems, to follow those pathways that are familiar to us? closing our hearts to people, distancing ourselves, protecting ourselves. We have some strange notion. We have some strange notion that this is a useful thing to do. <laughs> Who is served and what is served? Why is it more difficult to follow the path of forgiveness and compassion? because it asks renunciation. It asks renunciation of pride. It asks renunciation of self. It asks renunciation of righteousness. It asks renunciation of superiority. It asks our renunciation of defensiveness. We need to ask ourselves sometimes which path is actually the easier path to follow. We live in a world of immense suffering. The gap between those who have and those who don't have widens. Hunger and fear and violence are the shadows that darken the lives of countless number of people. Greed and heedlessness and the addiction to pleasure and power are the diseases of fear that fuel and escalate suffering in our world. There is no life that is untouched by pain, but there are too many lives in which pain is the ceaseless and unrelenting companion. How do we respond to this world that we live in? It very much relies upon our capacity to listen to a person who cannot listen well, the encounter with pain can make them either fearful or angry. We have perhaps have seen these reactions arise in ourselves in relationship to pain. We encounter the face of pain every day in our lives, in the face of the homeless, the face of the lonely, the face of the angry, the face of the dispossessed, the face of the alienated, we encounter the face of pain every day in our lives in the images that our media so relentlessly churns out. Often it seems that the pain belongs to someone else. It's somebody else's pain. Sometimes we are terribly frightened by it. And we believe that the only way to protect ourselves from pain is to distance ourselves from it. Numbness, distraction, preoccupation. These are the mechanisms we use to preserve separation, and they are the mechanisms of fear. Sometimes we do fear that if we listen wholeheartedly to the pain in our world, we're going to be perhaps overwhelmed or drained or incapable of response, and we fear it could happen to us. 
At times we become angry and shout at the world and find fault. Anger stirs us perhaps to find solutions. Yet in our anger we are married in an essential way to all who perpetuate pain in the world. I once had a friend who lived at Greenham Common in England. It was a camp set up by women to protest the American airbase there. And these women lived there for years around the perimeters of the fence, living very simply in tents, cooking, and just sitting there and keeping vigil to peace. And it went through different highs and lows. Sometimes they would be left for weeks, and sometimes they would be hassled severely. One day, there was a demonstration around the base, and the police came, and in, it, it got pretty wild and intense. And the, the woman who I know, she saw her companion beside her being hit by a, night, a policeman's truncheon stick. And her, fa her friend's face was bleeding. And in that moment, she picked up a stone and threw it in the face of the policeman. And she knew, and she said, that she knew that she was married to the policeman in the most essential way. She was married in anger that both of them touched the world in exactly the same way, that both of them wounded. Sometimes we have anger and fear in response to pain in ourselves, and we also become experts at avoidance and numbness and blame. Fear and anger are not the response of wisdom and compassion. They are not the response of being able to listen well. We are learning how to do that. This is what our path is about, learning how to listen well, to respond to pain with simply, with love, with compassion. Because this love and this compassion is the most primary and fundamental expression of wisdom. The person we see are before us, the people we see around us, they are ourselves in a different form, and this we need to understand. The person we see before us is ourself in a different form. I would like to read you something that was printed in the Inquiry Mind some time ago. It was a story from a hospice. A woman came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she didn't want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped out feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many, so often, that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks, her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how intense her holding or how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness 
wash over her and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense quite beyond reason that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breast slack from malnutrition lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo woman lying on her side dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips, legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was die, each dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. The pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just wasn't my pain, it was the pain. It wasn't just my life, it was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She asked after them constantly. And the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sitting on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, the heart she had rejected before they were born. <clears throat> for several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. Love does not need to be dramatic. Compassion is a kind of silent love. When I was in India, I spent some days in the building that Mother Teresa and her nuns have created for the dying in Calcutta. And I spent several days going out with the nuns, absolutely stunned by their dedication to go out in a van every day and to seek the dying, to pick them off the garbage heaps, to pick them out of the gutters, to pick them off the sidewalks, usually too many to fit in the building, in the house in one day. And many of these people who were dying, they were not dying with grace, surrounded by love. They were dying alone in the most intense suffering. And I would be with the nuns, working with the nuns, bathing these bodies that were covered with leprous lesions, sores and ulcers, everything you could imagine, faces eaten away by disease. And someone with me asked the nuns, how can you do this? How can you look at this day after day and keep your heart open? And one of the nuns said, here I look in the face of God. Now, there is this quality, this element of emptiness, this element of selflessness, 
that is actually at the heart of compassion. And compassion is concerned with learning how to honor this spirit, this emptiness and this possibility within all life. Now the nuns who worked in that home, they actually know logically the dying will never stop. Even those who don't die by some unlogical reason who leave the house, the nuns know they will return another day to die. There is no condition and no demand. We are left with the simple capacity to honor the life and the dignity and the essence of all beings. We can demand no results. We cannot cure suffering, but we can be present within all suffering. Compassion asks us to have that equanimity to demand no results from love that we offered. Sometimes, you know, we're too conditioned to believe that something is only worthy if it has an effect, if it has a result, if it makes a tangible difference in the world. But in that demand, self becomes invested in compassion. I may offer, I may give, I may serve, but I may also want. Now, sometimes I think we are tempted. We see these, these kind of images of the examples here of these young nuns in Calcutta. And we are tempted to think, well, you know, these are really saintly people. These are really special people. But actually, they're very young women, very young women from all over the world. They, they had no idea what they were getting into, you know. They came from America, they came from England, they came from Ireland. And their mother superior, Mother Teresa says, look, no, you go work here. There's no training, no special qualifications. They're asked to go here and to be choiceless. To be choiceless. To be choiceless in service. To be choiceless in embodying compassion. Now, all of these young women have demons, like we have demons. And yet it is true that there are very few demons that we carry that have the power to withstand the profound impact, the profound nobility of compassion and love. This commitment to compassion, to living in a compassionate way, is actually choiceless. That is one of the foundations of compassion. Sometimes we do find ourselves making choices. Where we are going to extend love, where are we going to extend compassion? But in those choices, we must ask ourselves, on what basis do we make these distinctions? To follow the path of self and separation is to make distinctions. We have a choice, it's true, in meditation. Initially, we have a choice. We have this invitation that is offered to us to honor our own essential nature to honor the essential truth of all things. Think of a single hour here, how many times we are offered choices, the choices between compassion and distance. There are many things we don't like, inwardly and outwardly. Retreats are actually an opportunity to explore the whole field of aversion. We have choices. 
we can follow the familiar pathways <coughs> of control, of anger or reaction. We have the choice, perhaps, it becomes more and more accessible to us, of following the path of the heart, of reaching for greatness, reaching for the greatness of our own possibility. We have the choice of staying confined within the known pain of separation, shouting at the world. Or we have the choice to cultivate clear connection. In the light of awareness, those choices become choiceless. Because actually we see that the only one who makes choices is the self that is invested in separation. And we see that choicelessness is actually the root of, of awareness. It is gui being guided by wisdom. Wisdom knows what to do. Wisdom knows the path of right speech, of right action. When I spent those few days with the nuns in Calcutta, I was very impressed that they began their day with silence and prayer. They began and completed each day with many hours of silence and prayer. Here we spend our days sitting and walking and silence. There is something that is shared. In this silence, this aloneness, we are cultivating a quality of communion. Communion with ourselves, communion with that which is most essential in all life. The silence and this quality of communion reveals the suchness, the harmony of all things, reveals that which is most true inwardly and in all beings. This is what we learn to honor and to serve through our way of being present in each moment. This invitation to stillness, this invitation to silence, is not a denial of movement. Stillness has endless room for movement. Endless room for movement without ever being disturbed. Awareness is so expansive and so vast that it embraces all things without distinction. Our way of being present in this moment is to cultivate and to nurture the silence of non-dwelling and non-holding and non-resisting because this is silent love. This is actually a silent love. In the spiritual path, I think we are at times encountering many paradoxes. And one of the paradoxes we encounter is really how to weave together personal responsibility and renunciation. Now, Buddhist teaching stresses entirely the need for us all to assume personal responsibility, to be responsible for the physical and spiritual well-being of all life, to bring to an end all conflict and hatred and greed. This needs to be at the forefront of our practice. Meditation teaches us to be a conscious participant in the creation of each moment and the creation of our world, to live in a sacred way, 
to live in an ethical, an awake, a mindful way. It teaches us, mindfulness teaches us, that nothing is irrelevant, that every word and every gesture and every thought and every feeling makes a ripple upon the waters of the world and teaches us that we all hold within ourselves the capacity to be a vehicle for communicating and embodying wisdom and compassion and love. Equally, we hold within ourselves the capacity to be a vehicle for communicating and embodying anger and division. The whole of meditation is in the service of wakefulness, in the service of awareness, and in the service of insight. Because in this service we manifest all that which is most true, most healing, and most liberating. We are asked to be responsible because we are asked to be responsive. We are asked to be awake. We are equally asked to let go, to cling nowhere, to become nothing, to hold on to nothing, to resist nothing, to have this willingness to be empty in ourselves, to have the willingness to renounce, to live in a spirit of renunciation, letting go of judgment, letting go of delusion, letting go of anger, because these are the vehicles of ignorance. To hold on to nothing, to abide nowhere, and to see the emptiness in self, the transparency of all separation and all division, the transparency of all division between inner and outer, I and you, us and them. Sometimes we feel somewhat suspicious of that emptiness. We ask ourselves, what will motivate us to heal if everything is seen as empty? What will inspire us to respond, to live in a compassionate way, to care, to love, if we see all things as being empty? What will give meaning? What will give meaning to a life of the spirit or a life of compassion if all the world of appearances is seen as transparent and empty of division and self. Now, it is true, perhaps, we might take the perspective that when we see the emptiness of division, what we see is a world of dancing phenomena, one phenomena dancing with another, the world of appearances arising and passing. And perhaps we might conclude, well, there is a certain irrelevance then. There's a certain irrelevance to all of this. If all of the world of appearance is simply the arising and passing of different phenomena, why live with compassion? Why seek for compassion? Why live with love? Emptiness reveals. Emptiness reveals to us. It is not take away only delusion. Understanding emptiness takes away only ignorance. What is revealed to us that in this world of appearances, in this world of phenomena, every phenomena, every life is a perfect 
and unique expression of truth, of suchness. And a life of meaning and a path of the heart is learning to honor that perfect and unique expression of suchness with a total compassion and love and wisdom. In this way, compassion is the manifestation of perfect wisdom. It asks no, no return, it makes no demands, it has no conditions. It is living in a way which honors the uniqueness and the suchness of all things. We learn to be empty in this moment. This is where we learn the art, the heart of compassion, and how to travel that path in our lives. May all beings be free from sorrow. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with compassion. We have just a few moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.